HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage using 100% pasture-raised, certified humane Berkshire cuts. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 1, right, 1 yeah. o'clock, uh, on the Tuesdays, joined, as usual, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm doing alright, we got Jack in the, oh sorry, Joe. oh we do not, we have no Jack, Jack hates us, we have Joe wow, in the booth wow. today, I got you confused because you have a new haircut, Joe. Yeah, actually, I've been called Jack several times now because I have short hair. Really? Yeah, a couple times. You know, uh, I shouldn't say this, but since uh, Jack's not here and I know I know he's not listening to the program because uh, he's totally sick of us, every time uh, uh, Nastasha sees someone with the, like the roughly Jack facial hair and like that kind of like you know, he has like a he wears a beanie he, thing well, yeah like a beanie ski cap yeah. kind of a thing with Jake. Whenever she sees that look, which is becoming ever more common, he's like, "Yo." Is that Jack? Is that Jack? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you're so, you're so racist against, Br- and he's a Manhattan guy now. Yeah. So you, know, you can't be, you can't call him a, the Brooklyn, the kind of the, the Brooklyn cool hipster, hipster look anymore yeah. because like he's now from Manhattan. Yeah. And since I feel like he's like, you know, like Jack is the model for all that look. Like you know, once he switches to Manhattan. Like it's over. It's now. It's now. It's a Manhattan look. Yeah. It? Soon, everyone in Manhattan is going to be dressing like Jack. Yeah. Right. Scraggly little beard and everything. Whoa, scraggly. No, I mean that, I don't mean that in a bad way. It, it, it really works for him. It really does. Yeah. 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 All right. So call in your questions two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight that's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. No, Joe. Come on, man. I'm gonna get fired. Scraggly. Jack's listening. That's my my. That, that should be your next band. Like when you do a side project, it should be called Scraggly in a Good Way. Maybe that's the if album. Jack's listening. The album. Then Jack should be here, right? Like uh, Jack's not listening. Yeah, exactly. Not, the last. I'm hoping right. Jack calls in from the office. This would just be great. Wow. So uh, what uh, what happened? We haven't been back in, in a long time because we hit on Christmas and then we hit on the New Year's. So uh, what's been going on, Stas? How is that? Where are you in California? California for Christmas, Connecticut for New Year's. Yeah, mm-hmm. how was that? It was okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's okay. Yeah, how was yours? Good. Uh, you know, I made. Uh, oh, we haven't spoken. Have we spoken to people since the Sears all thing is done, or no? Uh, no. No. No, yeah, well, our Sears All thing is over. Uh, for those of you that, uh, I don't know, don't, you know, first time listening to something, we, we made a, uh, a product called the Sears All, and uh, Nastasha hates this, so I'm going to make her do it. Nastasha, do does it sear? Uh, does no. it sear only some things? No. Did, what, m- most things? No. Everything? Yes. All? Yes. Sears All? Uh. Sears All! Anyway, so uh, we had a Kickstarter for this, and uh, we, we sold, like, something on, in the, on the order of, like, uh, 2,800 of them. Uh, and it was actually uh, the eighth, we looked this up yesterday, the eighth largest food Kickstarter of all times. 
food Kickstarter. Uh, Jack would have um, hit the applause button. Yeah, right yeah. Oh, oh damn. all right, all right. Damn, no game, no game. And uh, yeah, so we did, we did well. And uh, and you know, I'm especially proud of uh, what we raised, considering that the individual donations it only cost like sixty five dollars to do it. So start, for those of you that missed it, uh, Nastasia has set up a. An online shop where you can buy it. Call us uh, so a shop starter or some crap. Uh, we'll announce it in a couple days. Uh, all right, whatever. We'll launch it, yeah. So it didn't happen. I just made that crap. No, up. no, anyway. it's ready to go. It's yeah, just yeah. All right, whatever. Go so anyway, so here's the thing. So uh, I did the prime rib for uh, for the for the Christmas. My mom, right? I, and I've said this before. I love my mom. Mom's a great cook. My mom's the reason why you know you I exist. cook. <laughs> Duh! Everyone's mom's the reason why they exist. She's also the reason, kind of, you know, why uh, I think I like to cook so much. Um, but uh, her kitchen is extremely poorly outfitted. Like so, I mean, and this is going to sound like I'm a complete like jackwad. She has no low temperature cooking, which is not part of the poor outfitting. Stas is giving me the you're a jer- jerk look, uh, but like it, she, she shouldn't have a low temperature thing. So I so anyway, so I brought my low temperature rig, which is a half Lexan. I brought. Oh, by the way, we got the Nomiku in on the break. I haven't gotten a chance to use it yet. Anyway, so we, we got the low temperature rig. Oh, I cooked some deer the other day. Low Going temperature. Ah. I don't have this New Year's resolution and not be on tangent. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about deer in a minute. Anyway, so I, uh, so I did the, the prime rib. My mom bought the entire freaking prime rib, which was so big, it wouldn't fit in a half Lexan. Wow. So I had to, and you know, the, the butcher did that thing where they cut the bones off and they roll the individual prime, they roll the prime rib and then retie it to the bones. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Whatever. Old school technique. So, uh, anywho, I pulled, I, I cut, I took, I disassembled the butcher's work, cut the bone into three plates cut two of the rib sections off of the prime rib, bagged them separately, bagged the whole thing in one of those, you know those Ziplocs that are intended for, uh, it's not food grade, please, no calls on this. You know the ones that are meant to like roll up comforters and, and, yeah. like, and stuff for like camping? That's the only thing she had big enough to hold this giant prime rib and I wanted to present it basically whole. So I did the whole sucker at 55 for like five hours, uh, five or six hours, then dropped it, then cooled it off, cooled it off, then threw it in a 500 degree oven to overcook the outside a little bit and give it that, and then finished off with dual searsol. So Stas, I put that, I put that picture up. You, you, it'll be up that. on the site where you can buy searsol. The dual searsoling, <laughs> gotta go, gotta go. You know, ding, 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 dueling searsols. You know, ding, 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 ding. Um, <laughs> so stupid. Yeah, big dumb. Oh, I also did some low temperature deer, uh, not the one Lucas sent because that one is uh, at the at the headquarters there. But uh, we will. Do you know what cut he gave us? Do you remember thigh? I think thigh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did loin, which is tough, but I did it uh, low temp. It worked uh, worked great. So like these uh, these two you know, friends of uh, Dax's girlfriend were you know were over. He's he's eight. Anyway, so they were over and the cousins. So this twelve year old. It's it's her and and her sister there eating, and so we thought that dad had shot the deer. They brought it from Illinois. They're from southern Illinois, like near the border down there. And uh, so, like halfway through the meal, they're like, "So you know, uh, so who sh- who shot this deer?" She's like, "I did." I was like, "Whoa!" Like this, like like thirteen year old like wow. you know girl shot this deer. I was like, "That's awesome." I was like, "How, how you know what size?" Was she? She's like, six pointer." I was like, "Whoa!" I love that. Love that. Anyway. Uh, we better we get on some questions. We're never going to finish this stuff yep. in time. Yep. Although I have to say, I, I, I don't know what made me think of this because Stas, you were over yesterday because it was cold and you didn't want to open the gate to the uh, the lab by yourself. So you're over at my house because I live near where I work. Thank God. Uh, I hate commutes. I hate them. Anyway, me too. Uh, yeah, the commutes. Well, hey, look, your choice. <laughs> Nastasha used to live down near where we worked, and she was like, "I hate it down here. I'm moving back to Hell's Kitchen." So two words: your choice. Yeah. Your choice. Yeah. Your choice. Uh, anywho. So uh, I moved apartments, and I'm going to talk later about it because someone asked about a kitchen. But uh, I moved, and uh, I used to have black floors, and I have a black lab dog. So I didn't think the dog shed so much. I moved into a place with gray floors. I was like, oh, my God, my dog shed so much. And so like, I bought a robotic vacuum cleaner and uh, the, the Roomba, the new one, which is pretty sweet. And like, here's the thing, right? Everyone's like, oh, maybe that's ridiculous, whatever. I love this damn thing. I love this robotic vacuum cleaner. It's a little loud. No, it's much less loud than a normal vacuum True, cleaner. But and you, you s- have to run it longer. Well, but yeah, but you can program it to run when you're not there. Anywho, it runs around the house and it, it plugs itself back in when it's done, and so it gets rid of all the dog hair, and I love it. And I was thinking, you know what? What reminded me of it, and the reason I'm bringing it up today, is that uh, you know how we always get these questions about, and what about because we do uh, we do technology and food, right? What about 3D printing food? What's the future of food? Future this, future that, right? You know what I'm saying, right? Stop. <laughs> Stop. Is like, hey, future this. 
Come on. It's that, that Stas is doing the point, the Jersey point. But the, uh, oh, so uh, she said, um, you know, it's like everyone always asks us these questions. And, you know, what they fundamentally don't get is even though we use a lot of new techniques and technologies, like, you know, we like cooking. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, we like human beings that make food that they think is delicious, that they are proud to serve to either their customers or their guests, or they're proud to make that they've created something. It's a, it's a product that comes from themselves. And that's, you know, why good cooks like to cook, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really the, the impetus is that you can make something that's high quality, you get to do it every day, you can constantly hone your skills, and it, and it gives a little bit of, of yourself to someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that why we like to do it? Mm-hmm. So obviously, you don't want a robot making your freaking food. It, like I mean, whatever fast food yes yes whatever fine industrial food yes great yes we all love Twinkies but uh, but like what I'm saying you don't want a robot making your food on a daily basis I was thinking but like the vacuum robot is perfect and here's exa- the crux of it and this is why I don't want my food 3D printed regularly I mean there are applications right but the vacuum cleaner is a good idea it's, no one says this that thing does vacuuming just like my mom used to do <laughs> if I could only find someone that can vacuum in the same way that my mom used to vacuum, then life would be great. You know what I'm saying? It's a freaking vacuum. Nobody cares. They just want it to run. They want it to get underneath the damn you know, thing. Yay! You know what I mean? Anyways. Uh, not a clapping. Yeah, not for our, no, not. Not for our stellar Kickstarter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christian from Denmark writes in on vacuum reduction. Hello, Nastasha. I hope this is the right place to send questions for cooking issues. It was, because here it is. Uh, if so, uh, tell the whole crew from yet another fan from Denmark. We are, we are another fan from Denmark. We are legion by Danish standards anyway. I've never been to Denmark. I was supposed to go to Denmark to Odens, like uh, home of the home of the uh, marzipan. Which, by the way, marzipan, delicious. Delicious. Do you like marzipan? I don't really like it very Why? Much. I don't like almond paste. Caller. What? All right, we'll get back to this question today. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, my name is Johnny. I'm from Madison. How you doing? Um, Wisconsin? Good. Yeah, where, where yep. Madison it's is there? It's cold there. Oh, yeah, how cold is yeah. it right now? <laughs> uh, it's only like 14 below right now. It was Whoa. 23 yesterday, though. See, here's what I love, right? Like, here in New York, we're, like, griping about this, like, you know, whatever it is, like, five, five Fahrenheit or whatever, and you guys would be laughing at us, like, fake northern <laughs> people as, like, a real northern person if you weren't getting slammed so hard right now yourself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I definitely, uh, there's not much else to concentrate on. But, um, <laughs> Do you have good winter gear? I was once in uh, Sweden, and although I was uh, wrecked, I was above the Arctic Circle, the dog sled lady who was running the, the musher, she said, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad coats. Oh. I was like, mm, mm, very zen. Anyway. I, I, I do. I think there is, like, once you've lived there for a while, there's definitely that opinion. Like, you just, like, don't complain. Just get a better setup. Yeah, nice. All right. Um, so what are you cooking today up there? Well, I, I, you, we actually interacted on Twitter because I sent you the picture of the broken centrifuge. Uh, oh, that's you! Bucket. Holy crap! How much? Di- so, for those of you that obviously, it, like, uh, I have this Twitter account at Cooking Issues. If you want to go to it, and uh, got got a question in, like, you know, like, well, not really a question, more just like a photo. I bought a centrifuge, and the buckets broke, and the inside of the thing got hosed. So I was, I wanted to know what the damage was. So, give us yeah. a little bit of background on what's going on here. So I, um, there was a second photo that I sent you had the, 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 the inside of the centrifuge. But, uh, yeah, so basically got a centrifuge through the university, pretty cheap, uh, had it checked out. It was a, a Beckman one, a little bit older, sure. and it had a, glass, had a glass cover, which was awesome because you could see inside. Uh, also terrifying. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so I, uh, I got – actually, I ordered a new rotor – uh, that I, that I was using, but I was using the the old buckets, right? And uh, the the bucket broke and it flew into the side and it stopped the centrifuge right away. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet. And, I've never. But, were you in the room when it happened? Uh, I wasn't, but there was someone else in there, and like, he said it scared the living crap out of him. I bet. Like, I, was, like how loud was it? Did did they say? Yeah, they said th- the dishwasher was like thirty feet away, and he said he felt the felt it move. Wow. And it moved, it moved three feet. Wow. Um, wow. And it was, do, it was doing about 4,000 RPM. So. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, a little background. So we're, we're dealing with um, 
we're dealing with uh, uh, benchtop, desktop, centrifuge. Uh, I think like so that with the Beckman Coulter with the with the plexi top is somewhere in the somewhere in the three liter range, right? It holds roughly three liters. Yep, three liters. Yeah, swinging bucket centrifuge, uh, and I've never dealt with a rotor failure uh, or even really seen pictures of rotor failures on the swinging buckets. But my point of contention has always been that these units, even when they fail are much safer than the larger, faster ones because the G-forces involved are, are comparatively low. So it's just very interesting for me to hear. Now, the buckets that – actually, interestingly, your buckets were not aluminum, right? Doesn't the Beckman Coulter have stainless steel uh, press buckets or no? Yeah, these ones were stainless steel. I actually have aluminum as well. Right. Um, so, I mean, aluminum buckets, aluminum when you're – and so a centrifuge, uh, again, for those of you who don't know, it, it, they spin and they separate things based on density. However, usually the in a swinging bucket rotor, the buckets, they swing, and they're buckets, hence swinging bucket rotor. And this is what we use mostly in the kitchen because they have a much larger capacity for their size than uh, what's called a fixed angle rotor, which normally uses tubes or bottles. And um, the problem is most buckets are made out of aluminum, and aluminum – uh, tends to fatigue over time with flex, and so you get cracks, and then they can catastrophically fail. And when they do, so uh, um, think of this: if you have a, a, a swinging bucket rotor, each rotor has its own, each bucket has its own weight plus an extra, uh, you know, 750 grams of product in it. That 750 grams, if you're doing 4,000 Gs, it, it is, has the equivalent weight of of like 3,000 uh, uh, kilos or something like this. So it's it's no joke. So when that thing flies <laughs> off, it's it's Really, no joke. I'm very surprised uh, that the Beckman Coulter stainless steel buckets broke because they don't typically show fatigue failures the way aluminum does. What was the failure mode of the bucket? Do you know? I uh, I can't. It's like seven thousand, eight thousand. I I'd have to look at it, but I, I remember just taking a peek at it. But. No, but what did, what happened? How did the bucket actually break? Like what part of it broke? Oh, at the top, right? I mean, exactly where you would think it is. It's kind of like. At the point where you latch it onto the the rotor, right? So yeah, so, so like in a normal in a, in a normal aluminum bucket, it's it's probably machined, right? And then there's these two like big things where these pins, these fat pins from the rotor fit in, and the buckets slip onto them. And in the stainless one, it looks like it's made out of sheet metal, right? I've never used the yep. stainless ones. Yep. I, I'm frankly. Is it possible that those the stainless ones are meant to only work with inserts and that they kind of flexed in under the force and popped out? I mean, that can be the only thing I could think of. Did it actually tear at the pin, or did it flex and pop out at the pin? I have no idea. It's probably it, too like, mangled, I mean, yeah. It literally, like, it, it, like, broke off. I'll send you another photo. But. Yeah, get a close-up. I'd like to see a close-up of where you think the failure started. So I can, anyway, so on to your question. Enough enough of peppering you with questions. What's, yeah. your, what's your question? Well, okay, so I, I had a bunch of questions. I mean, we started using it, and it, it's been pretty useful, and I figured out quite a bit. But, yeah, I was one of the questions was, you know, what we talked about right now is, like, do different buckets need to use the inserts, you know? So maybe, right. we don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've never used this. The, one of the reasons I stayed away from the Beckman Coulters specifically is that the insides of their buckets uh, are uh, square, right? Uh, no, bucket? these are round. Oh, they're round insides? Okay, so some of them have the square buckets, and I don't like square, uh, I don't like square buckets without inserts, the reason being that if you, if you were to... If you were to take a, a, a tack, a strobe tack, which you can buy, I've done it with mine, which is a terrible idea. And you, but you put a because uh, I don't have a glass top on mine, uh, and you um, put a. In fact, I think with someone, Coulter, Beckman Coulter, somebody makes one that's meant to do this, and you just fire a strobe tack at it. You can you can get it to fire correctly either by tuning it by hand with a, with a strobe tack, or by uh, putting a little reflective piece of tape on to trigger the tack, and. Um, uh, with an external signal, you can freeze it. When you freeze it, you'll see that as the thing is spinning, the liquids inside are rotating and scouring on the inside of the bucket. So my feeling has always been that in a square bucket where you have those uh, side seams, that as it slows down, rather than settling, any like kind of less well-formed parts of the puck at the bottom of the of the thing are gonna are gonna get refluffed up to the top. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's why I've always thought um, round bottoms were good. But anyway, so go ahead. Yeah. Um, but mostly what I questions were is just about using clarifying components. Like, obviously, the Pecnex is pretty useful, but do you find that if stuff fits for a day, that it 
cloudy again or stuff like that. I saw like I did banana juice and onion juice, and they both got cloudy. Right. So here's what happens. So you use the Pectinex, and typically, especially on onion juice, I've noticed this. You, you like we'll we'll do like a double spin on it because uh, it doesn't yep. knock out. The pectinex doesn't get rid, and I, I don't even know, frankly, whether it's all pectin or there's other kind of suspended uh, hydrocolloids there. But what you'll do is you'll do an initial clarification run, and the sucker will look clear. The same thing happens, by the way, when you do a uh, quick agar clarification and things like this. So it looks pretty clear, and then you let it sit in the fridge, and then all of a sudden it kind of gets these wispy things, and sometimes it even goes full cloudy, or sometimes you get a precipitator settle out. And what's happening is is that over time uh, – you know the, the these things that are are soluble are in solution and therefore not making it cloudy will agglomerate together, uh, coalesce, and then become large enough to partially drop out of solution and make it cloudy again. So the solution there is just to, uh, or the answer I should say, is to uh, respin. And uh, we do, we, I do that uh, a lot. And I, what, I, what I don't know, because I've never done uh, a lot of testing on it because I just haven't had the time to really sit out and do it, is it's like, okay, if you do the onion juice and you just let it sit for two days before you do your first spin, would you still need to do a second spin? I don't know. You know, I don't know whether or not, like, removing all of that massive stuff is what allows these other things to the, or that other pectins, whatever, to, to uh, agglomerate together or whether or not you would get a better or a simpler result if you just let it sit for a couple of days before you spun it out. I, I don't know. But it's a fairly common phenomenon to get some flock out and have to do a respin. Okay, so if I respin it, I'm not going to see the cloudy again? No, you're done. Yeah, and so I noticed that you do it for about 15 minutes normally on a lot of stuff. Is, is there a benefit to do it longer or shorter or... Uh, well, I mean, the longer you go, so again, when you turn on, if, if you were to if you were to get a strobe tack, which I would if I were you. By the way, what I'm talking about, guys, is a uh, it's a strobe light that's that you can uh, adjust how the rate of firing, and it allows you to freeze things like centrifuge buckets, like visually freeze them, so you can see what's going on. And if you were to if you fire up the centrifuge and you look at it with a strobe, you uh, what you see is is that the the juice clarifies very very quickly. And then um, once, once it's settling out. Now, there are some things that take a long time to clarify out, and you have to spin for a long, long time. But in general, most of the products that we use are clarifying relatively quickly. But what you need to do is run it long enough to compress the puck so that it doesn't yeah. resuspend as it starts uh, coming back, uh, as the speed starts slowing back down. So – you know, a lot of times I'm doing, um, you know, for events, we're doing a lot of product, and so I try to get my spin times down as, as low as possible without compromising quality. And so usually 15 is good enough, and so I don't try to go longer. Sometimes if I'm really in a bind, I'll, I'll you know, I'll cut it to 10. Anything below 10, and I have a lot of times I'll have a lot of resuspension problems. I mean, some things are easier than others. Bananas drop like a rock, you know what I mean? Like once you hit them with pectinex, banana pulp just like slams to the bottom of your of your thing, and it's, you know, not, not a problem. Whereas other things, you know, they, they take a little more spinning. Like tomato usually throws a flock. And, and you know, if you want to also reduce your problems with that deaeration before you spin, it makes it settle a lot faster because you don't have as many problems with air bubbles having to pop before it goes down. Surprising fact, oh, nice. you know, 4,000 4, G's, not enough to pop like, kind of the micro air bubbles and that's why a lot of times you'll get especially on something like tomatoes where you're blending it in a blender and it, it, it traps so much pulp you'll get a mat on the top and I don't think that mat is caused by things that are inherently less dense like oil I'm pretty sure that that mat is just a trapped air mat do you cook the bananas first or do you uh, just do yeah, no cook no cook, but you have to make sure to use um, ripe bananas because raw bananas yeah. contain starch, and the starch will not settle out on a centrifuge. To get a, to, in our centrifuges anyway, like to get it yeah. to settle out, you need to you know you just wait a long, long time. The starch will eventually settle out, or you could probably eat the starch with an amylase. But the issue is, uh, I am not sure whether the amylase starch can withstand the alcohol environment that we do in a typical kind of banana hustino situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, we. Uh we, I, I pressure cooked them first with uh, some baking soda and like caramelized them, and it turned out really good. I was that was my favorite thing they did. But, oh, nice, nice. Um, and then just I I I picked up two centrifuges because my contact at the university had it. But the other one is a uh, pretty is not as quite as fast as about two thousand G's. Right. Is there much I can do with that, or you're gonna have to probably is it fixed angle or swinging bucket? 
Uh, fixed angle. Okay, so the good news for you is that fixed angle uh, fixed angle rotors uh, tend to get uh, a better uh, level of clarification at uh, lower g forces than a swinging bucket does. So you can get good results with a uh, a fixed angle running at two thousand g's. You're going to probably have to spin a little longer, and obviously, you know, <clears throat> you probably don't have the same capacity in it. But if you look at a fixed angle rotor, a fixed angle rotor is holding uh, the tubes at a relatively steep angle. And what that means is is that the average particle that you need to clarify out of solution needs to only travel a very short distance before it hits the uh, side of the tube. And then it's scoured down towards the bottom where it pellets and forms a puck. But they have very strong pelleting uh, capabilities, which means that you can do the kind of work that we're doing at relatively lower speeds and still get good results. So I'd say it should work for okay. a lot of the recipes, not all of them. Um, and then I noticed you used the wine clarifying um, uh, chemicals as well. Do you is that helpful or is it? I mean, obviously helpful, but how helpful? Oh, incredibly helpful. Like so, yeah. you know, when I'm doing lime juice or grapefruit juice, I usually use it on citrus products. Um, it, it, you know, it, uh, it it this stuff almost auto clarifies. If you let lime juice sit around and you do the Kieselsol and Kytosan, which are the two wine finding agents I use in, in conjunction with SPL, it'll settle just like apple juice will. And the only reason I centrifuge it is to increase my yield. I mean, I'd probably only get a – without a centrifuge, I'd only – and someone asked me this question later. I'm going to get to it hopefully. But you only get a yield of about 50 percent, whereas okay. uh, you know, with a centrifuge, I get something like 98 percent yield off of lime juice. Oh, very good. All right. Well, I think the thing – I'm glad that it broke in some ways because now I know like a worst-case scenario. <laughs> that is the worst. You, you have experienced the worst-case scenario. It's all yeah. uphill from here, my friend. <laughs> but great. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Stay warm. Bye. All right. So back to Christian Hall from Denmark. Um, uh, thanks so much for your hugely inspirational radio show and blog. Very nice. We like to hear comments, right, Stas? Yeah. Uh, I have a university background in philosophy and literature. Well, I have philosophy. You have literature. Yep. Yeah. Me, I don't, I don't read fiction because I'm a jerk. I miss fiction. I'm yeah. gonna start reading again. Yeah, yeah. You know, my my wife who is editing edited my uh, you know well I have an editor Maria Guarnaschelli, but who like my wife is like you know read and is the reason why I'm considered a writer is because my wife reads all this stuff. She goes, Dave, you need to read fiction so that your writing doesn't yeah, suck. So yeah, that's she's yeah. so hard. My wife's so hardcore. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, philosophy and literature and learning about the analytical approach to cooking that's at the center of the modernist movement. Viewing a dish as a series of problems to be understood and solved was what convinced me there might be a point to putting my 30-year-old self through cooking school. And today, four years later, I'm running my own catering company. We've got versions of your gel and ice cream on the menu at least once a week and are running our centrifuge based on your recommendations every day. Nice. I like that. And, you know, oh, I, like I said before, I've never been to Denmark. Someday. Actually, it's not true. I flew into Denmark to go to Sweden, but that we didn't doesn't stay. Count. doesn't count. That's like saying I was in blah, blah. I was in the airport. No, you weren't there. All right. <laughs> Uh, here are my questions. For a while now, I've been experimenting with vacuum reductions using the aspirator slash stirring hot plate method outlined in modernist cuisine. But I'm finding that running the aspirator is too much of a hassle for us to really start making proper use of it. Could I switch to a diaphragm pump instead? And if so, what would some of the advantages, disadvantages be? I've also been toying with the idea of adding a cold finger. Cold finger. I love that word, cold finger, don't you? Cold mm. finger. Mm. Cold finger condenser and uh, receiving flask in between the boiling flask and the pump to try out distillations. Would this work even remotely well, or should I just hold off until we can afford a proper Rotovap, a.k.a. rotary evaporator? Keep up the great work. Looking forward to getting my Sears all. Thanks, Christian Hall. Okay. So for those of you that have no idea what we're just talking about, uh, here's the thing. So uh, when you want to do uh, reductions of things, let's just say port wine, because everyone wants to reduce port wine, right? Don't you like a port wine reduction? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, shut up. Uh, uh, So... It, the problem doing normal reductions is obviously they happen at high temperature. So what, by putting something under under a vacuum, like in a rotary evaporator or a vacuum still, you can do reductions at um, low temperature. So you get very, very fresh, punchy flavors that haven't been altered by high, high heat. Now, the average bartender – so in a rotary evaporator, that's one of the things you can do. So the average bartender cares mostly about the distillate, right? And so this aspirator thing that we're talking about, which I'll explain in a second, doesn't really help, help with that. Uh, but – the average uh, 
cook cares mostly about the reductions, what's in the reduction flask. And so for that is the aspirator. So Chris Young and Nathan Mirvold, you know, and uh, Maxine, when they were writing The Modernist Cuisine, one of the things they said, hey, look, it's not just for rich people, is they bought an aspirator. An aspirator is uh, uses a kind of like a Venturi effect. You blow water. It doesn't have to be water, actually. It could be anything else, but they use water uh, out of a faucet. Uh, as it goes through, uh, that entrains air and blasts it down, and it creates a vacuum. And this is how, uh, you know, in high school, you used to make a va- – well, at least me, because I, did, I didn't do it in college. You know, this is how you'd make a vacuum in the lab. You'd have these water aspirators, and you'd run, and they'd run water into the sink. And, now the, and they'd work. Now, the advantage of this kind of a pump – and so then what he did is he, he hooked this up to an Erlenmeyer flask, which is a, a square uh, – you know, a flat-bottom flask uh, with a neck. The neck went to the aspirator pump. Uh, and then uh, you know you have your product in there. You have a stir plate to keep it stirred so it doesn't bubble over, and you heat it a little bit because if you don't heat it at all, it'll just get colder and colder as stuff evaporates. It's evaporative cooling. So you have to heat it even if you're doing room temperature distillation, and you suck the vacuum, and there you go. You get your reductions at low temperature. Now, theoretically, this is going to work. However, aspirators uh, have two fundamental problems. First problem, they don't suck a very good vacuum. Period. Because the amount of vacuum you can suck is dependent upon the vapor pressure of water at whatever temperature you're using. So uh, if you're heating your product up, right, uh, you know, up to a reasonable level, then you have a good deal of difference between the boiling point of your product and the current vapor pressure of water at your cold water temp. One of the ways to solve that is to recirculate the water in the aspirator and put ice into it. This lowers the vapor pressure of the water and allows you to get uh, higher vacuums. The other disadvantage of aspirators is they have abysmal, abysmal pump rates. So you can you know, pump very little uh, actual volume of air regardless of how good your, um, your, you know, the, the ultimate vacuum you can attain is. Now, one way to get around this is to gang multiple aspirators together. Like, and you know, I've said this many times, but you know, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was first looking into – or whatever, eight years, whatever it is – looking into doing vacuum distillation, I turn to whoever, you know, the people who, uh, you know, need vacuum distillation and can't go to normal channels and don't have money, meth producers. And so meth producers online, they used to, I don't know where they still have them, had a bunch of websites on how to basically, you know, set up a meth, meth labs at home. And one of the things they're concerned with is vacuum, uh, uh, vacuum distillation. And so they would take what's called a float. They would go to Home Depot. They would buy a Flowjet garden pump, which is like you know, like to pump water. And they would pump it through multiple ganged aspirators hooked up to PVC piping. And I tried it, and it wor- I wasn't making meth. I was not making meth. Uh, and uh, but they, you know, it worked okay, but still it chokes up. It's not the best thing for it uh, for doing a vacuum reduction. So I really, you know. If you're going to be doing a lot of it, I think you can play around with the aspirator, but Matt. Uh, now, if you're going to switch to a diaphragm pump, diaphragm – so the, the, the two main pumps, once you throw the aspirator out, the two main pumps that you're going to be dealing with are either uh, a rotary vein pump, oil pump, and the only really affordable ones you can get are the styles for refrigeration. So Robinair, uh, you know, Yellow Jacket, um, things like the JB. These are refrigeration pumps, and they make a boatload of them because every refrigeration tech in the country, probably in the world, I'm sure it's done the same way everywhere – um, they take this uh, refrigeration pumps and they pump the old uh, refrigerant out of your of your refrigerator and they have to suck an, like an amazing vacuum to completely dry down and get all the contaminants out of your refrigeration system before they recharge it. So there's a lot of them out there and they're relatively inexpensive. And they have a relatively high pump rate and they have a relatively good ultimate vacuum uh, down in the – you know like you know a couple of millibars you can get down to which is pretty damn good more than you need um they also have a fairly decent uh toleration of uh entrained moisture now your problem now if you go to diaphragm pumps they don't get nearly as good a, a, a vacuum they're a lot more expensive but they don't uh volatilize uh or put oil or smells into your kitchen and they're a lot cleaner than and they're a lot quieter than uh the rotary vein pumps so that's, that's the kind of the, the trade-offs neither one of them is designed to handle large quantities of vapor that's the only advantage of the aspirator is that the aspirator can handle as much vapor as it can pump out, it can handle because it's not getting contaminated by the vapor. It's just shooting the vapor out into whatever your your you know whatever the trough is that you're putting it into. So 
in order to use either a diaphragm pump or a rotary vein pump, you will need a cold trap of some sort. So in order to do this at all, this is a long answer to your question, you're going to need the cold finger to uh, condense your product back because the secret of distillation, which is what you're doing, whether or not you think of it as reduction or not, what you're actually doing in a closed system, which is what you're going to need to do to to get your vacuum to not choke on you, is to do uh, actual distillation. And you need to supply as much cooling power to recondense your vapor as you supplied to – to boil it off in the first place. And there are pumps, uh, you know, like BOC Edwards makes a, a dry vein pump that I'm, I hear can handle large amounts of vapor, but you're talking like three, four, three, four thousand, you know, bucks. Uh, so is it worth trying to do distillations that way before you get a rotovap? Let me put it this way. Uh, I did it. Uh, I got products I thought tasted good, and but all it did was wet my appetite to buy a rotovap, which I eventually did. And so I think it's kind of, uh, you know, it's worth doing as a gateway. And as soon as you start playing around with it, you're going to say to yourself, damn, I need to go buy myself a rotovap. And you probably will. Let me know. Anyway, what do you think, Stas? Is that a reasonable answer? Did I answer the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's go to a commercial break on cooking issues. program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Wow. Wow. The uh, the harmonica with the ham. That's new, right? The harmonica music behind the ham? It's it's a match made in heaven. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think we've been using that one a little bit, but maybe it's a new mix. Jack had to make a new ad, so maybe the harmonica stands out a little bit more. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I'm just not, you know, I, I had never associated uh, Sam Edwards' hams with uh, harmonica, but I guess now now I will. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right, well, you know, we like, we, like their, we like their product. They make an excellent product. But you have to eat it to enjoy it. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, a caller. We have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. Nastasha. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. Um, I have a question about koji, Ooh. and um, I bought some of the Cold Mountain koji, and I used it to uh, make my own uh, shio koji and to make amazake successfully. And um, how was it? Now I want to experiment and get into making some miso and 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 some other things. But instead of you know buying the tubs of the of the Cold Mountain or one from online, what I want to do is make my own. Um, uh, you know, koji spores. So if I let the rice um, go to spore, I was reading that there might be some risk of creating some um, some toxins if it goes too far. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on on, on doing this at home and uh, how to how to get a good result. So then I can culture all kinds of things that aren't aren't uh, aren't just rice. Right. Okay. So uh, first of all, how was the amazake? Was it good? Oh, it was delicious! Really sweet. You take it, put it. Actually, it makes a great ice cream. Really? I bet it's yeah, ice. yeah. It's already thick and 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 uh, just just blend it up and uh, in the blender and stick it in the freezer. It's got great texture. That's a really amazing idea. I don't know why I never thought of that. That's a good idea. I might try that. We should do it. Yeah, uh, we should. It's a good not idea. Today. So, uh, not not today. Uh, although you could just walk outside with it right now and just like turn on the the blender and make it. Just kidding. Uh, exactly. So, uh, so for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, uh, koji uh, is uh, fundamentally you, you you have an aspergillus. I forget which which aspergillus. It's an aspergillus mold that's grown on uh, uh, on things like rice, uh, and uh, you use that to instead of uh, a malting thing as a base to break down carbohydrates for then further fermentation, right? And so you yep. start with a koji base for things like sake, for amazake, for, uh, or for things like uh, misos or uh, other fermented things like this. And it, it's uh, the problem being, and this is you know, the question here, is there are aspergillus strains that, are, that do produce toxins. Uh, I, unfortunately... You know the real guys to ask on this are the uh, Momofuku, uh, the Momofuku lab guys, because they, you know, they're the ones doing all of their own kind of misos, and they do all their own koji work and all their own sporulation. If you were to take a something that you had that was already uh, inoculated, and then just keep that one and keep re-inoculating based on that, I would think your odds of contamination with something that's nasty is pretty low. But I don't have enough experience for me to. Um, go out on, on on a limb and so you know ask like having me say something i would just be respouting stuff from shirt leaf's miso book and from sandra katz's fermentation book so i you know i hesitate to give you my own kind of advice on it you know okay um all right uh i guess i'll i'll have a i'll, I'll send an email to the momofuku lab guys and um if i get a response yeah, like Ryan over there. I, you know, I, I I can ask him. You know, when I, when I see him, so, you know, fundamentally, you just want to know like how to how to tell if something bad has happened. Well, I want to make my own. You know what they call kochikin, right? Right. Which is the it's the spores themselves. So then you can sprinkle that stuff on on pretty much anything, and then you know go to town and experiment. Um, you can order some spores online, but then you know you have a finite amount, right? Or you can take, or I can buy, you know, like the Cold Mountain um, koji, which is already rice, grow it, and then harvest off the um, some of the uh, some of the spores from from that. Uh, you know, so that's that's really that's really the question. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that they do it. So you, so in other words, you want something that you can like do once, then save as a dry form for a long time, and then do again, and like be guaranteed of good results. Exactly. Yeah, I'll look into it, and and and, and I'll I'll uh, because your feeling is if you just save some and just kind of dehydrate it, grind it up, and then powder that back in, that you won't necessarily have the efficacy that you need. That's that's the that that's a worry, or you know, or will that work? I guess is the question. I mean, 
I think that probably How will. How do you propagate it? I mean, I probably, yeah, all right. I, 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 look, this is something I should know, and I'm embarrassed for not knowing off the top of my head, so I'll look into it. And Stas, write, write, a, write an email to yourself so that we have it for next week. And next week, I'll get the answer for you because if I don't, I'm not able to fa- answer it. I'll just ask the Momo Lab guys myself, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to the bottom of it for you for next week. Thank you kindly. All righty, talk to you. Or, well, all right, stay warm. All right, bye. Cool, bye-bye. All right, so uh, Joe from Chicago uh, writes in about kitchen design. Hey, Dave and Cooking Issues crew. I currently live in downtown Chicago. Also cold there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some cold over there. Uh, I currently live in downtown Chicago and have plans to move out of the city in the next year or two. In the meantime, I've been obsessing over designing the perfect kitchen. And given your recent move, I figured I'd ask you the following questions. What's most important to you when establishing uh, yourself in a new kitchen space in terms of organization, placement of appliances, maximizing efficiency, etc.? I would love to hear a rant on your approach to kitchen design, and how will your approach change if you weren't crammed into a tiny NYC space? All right, well, as to the second section of that, how would, how would my approach change if I wasn't crammed into a tiny space? I would definitely uh, – I, I would just have more freaking equipment. And it's not even just the space. It's also my power limitations. I live in an apartment – and, uh, you know, I have relatively unlimited supplies of gas, but I have very limited supplies of electricity, uh, which means that, you know, my ovens have to fire on gas. Uh, I can only have a single group espresso machine. Wow, pity me, mom. Uh, <laughs> douche. Uh, but the uh, – I'm a douche. Big douche. So, uh, you know, so for me in an apartment, space management is a key issue. Power management, also an issue. Ventilation, also an issue. Very hard to get good ventilation in a, uh, you know, New York City apartment because it's hard to compromise window space and you're not allowed to punch a whole lot of holes in your wall. Uh, Even regular home ventilation that most people get just sucks. It's just so bad. I mean, the thing that I would do, the first thing that I would invest in when you invest in a new kitchen is invest in proper ventilation and makeup air so that you can run your kitchen without smoking it. And when I say run it, I mean beat it hard. You want to fire up all your burners. You want to be cooking something at a billion degrees in your oven if you want to and, you know, grilling something and you don't want to have the rest of your family run in there and be like, the house is full of smoke. It's full of smoke. It hurts my eyes. You know what I mean? This is not what you want to have happen. You want to be able to beat on your kitchen and have the smoke go away. And I've said this for a long time. I think in kitchens, like uh, I hope that in the next 10 years, one of the things people focus on more is air quality in the in the kitchen in terms of ventilation as being a major problem to be dealt with in the average home kitchen. And I don't really know whether it's just because people don't cook enough at home anymore or what, but people aren't concerned enough about ventilation except for when you're about to cook. And then everyone's concerned about, are you going to set off the smoke detectors? Are you going to set off the smoke detectors? And so people actually cook in a crappy fashion at home because they haven't bothered there are people that out there who have like five thousand six thousand dollar stoves right and they won't use them to their maximum capability because they're worried about setting off the freaking smoke detectors in their house because they haven't invested in proper ventilation to use their cooking equipment properly right now second rant about uh cooking equipment is that i use uh, exclusively professional uh, ranges at home, even though I'm not supposed to, uh, and I'll tell you why. Home ranges don't have the power. They, I looked at them like the, the average, like professional style, and you can see my hands making those dumb quote things. But like professional style home ranges, they cost a lot of money, and the burners just don't have the oomph. They're just not powerful enough to do what I want them to do. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I prefer, and I don't always use it, but I prefer to have a burner in the, you know, I don't need it like mega. I don't need a 35K uh, BTU uh, burner, but I like to have a burner that can, if you want to, pump up to like in the, and I, and I know when I say this many times, measuring something based on BTUs alone is dumb because it, it's a measure of how much energy it uses, not a, a measure of how much energy it puts into the pan. A good induction unit can, can beat a, a, you know, a 30,000 BTU burner any day. But that said, I'm, I'm a mainly a gas person for the reasons I said earlier. 
uh, and 30,000 in that range is where I kind of need to be to really get the power I want. But you want to choose a burner that throttles down appropriately and that has a flame pattern that can accommodate both large pans and small pans without uh, uh, too much difficulty. All right? If you're going to invest, I would invest also in – if you can get an electric oven, preferably convection, I would do that. I mean, so the ultimate in terms of – unless you're going to go full induction and, and, and go really nice and get used to it, which I've never done, you know, you're going to want gas range and electric uh, oven with good ventilation, right? Uh, back in the day when I had space, when I lived in a loft and power, you know, it was like three-phase power because it was a sweatshop that it used to be before I moved in there, I had a, uh, I had a, a Blodgett commercial convection oven and that thing was a cookie machine. That thing, I could blast out cookies and, uh, you know, non-hearth bread, bread styles, like, like nobody's business. Six pan, uh, a six pan commercial uh, convection oven, like the baking things, they're monsters. I would definitely recommend one of those. Now, in terms of, I would get a commercial espresso machine, but that's me, and a seltzer rig, which you asked about, and I'll talk about in a minute. I mean, that's kind of, you know, just stuff that I, that I would want. But like, once you have an espresso machine that's plumbed, you're never going to want to go back to something that's not plumbed. Another thing, foot pedals. Put foot pedals on your sink. Let me just say this again. Put foot pedals on your sink. People don't really know how to install them, so you're going to have to learn to either get a plumber who's willing to work with you or learn to do a little, a little bit of the plumbing yourself. TNS Brass sells a couple of ones that can have – I don't want only foot pedals. I want foot pedals and uh, wrist action handles uh, as well. But here's something that I, I want you to consider. Why would you ever want – to touch the handle of a faucet when your hands are dirty in the kitchen. Let me repeat this. Why would you ever want to touch the handle of a faucet when your hands are dirty in the kitchen when you could just use a foot pedal? Am I right, Stas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she said, I don't care. But foot pedals, everyone that's ever used them is like, everyone who's like, I talked to them about it, like, that's ridiculous. Why do you need the foot pedals? And then uh, when you, when they actually use it, they're like, why, have, why does everyone not have the foot pedals? Everyone loves the foot pedals. The only problem with the foot pedals is uh, cleaning around them can be a difficulty. They make ones that are mounted high so you can clean under them easier. But I didn't have the capability to put that in. Another thing, unusual, but I think is rec- uh, a nice thing to have, is if you can afford uh, a six, a standard kick is like three and a half inches, like a two by four on its side uh, for things. If you can afford six inches and lift everything off the ground, really nice to clean under. By the way, the Roomba can get underneath a six inch thing, so it cleans underneath all of my all of my uh, uh, stuff, which is nice in the kitchen to be able to clean all the way uh, underneath everything. Another thing in the kitchen you're going to want to look out for is uh, your movement. I unfortunately now have to be in a galley kitchen. Oh, and light. Tons of light. If you can, uh, uh, I used to, in my old place, my kitchen was, uh, you know, not, was almost a part of my living room. And I had, I put uh, strong lights with barn doors on them so that I could shield the light from going into the living room and spilling over. But a kitchen without light is just, it's just stupid. It's just dumb, right? Uh, In organization on it, I mean, the way I had it before in my old place, I liked a lot better because it wasn't uh, linear. Right now, like I said, I'm in a galley. So right now, my oven is next to my sink. If you can arrange it so that two people can fit, if you can have like a good four feet uh, you know, clear space, have the long sink. I, had a lo- I have a long sink with cutting boards that mount in my sink so I can go directly into the disposal with cuttings, which makes it nice for like, you know, speed. But then you can, you can cut and prep and wash and then turn around and be at your stove. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Now, another thing on organization that I would say, uh, here's my cardinal rule and it got messed up over time. Uh, but now that I'm back in a new place, I'm able to like exert more control over it. Only ever stack like on like. Never stack like on dislike things. What do I mean by this? I detest nesting bowls where you have a little bowl and a slightly larger bowl and a slightly larger bowl and a slightly and they're all made of heavy glass and so I want that one in the middle and I gotta like get it and then I gotta root around or you have baking pans it's ridiculous you don't need that many sizes of bowl you really only need I have let me look in my head one two three I have four size of stainless steel bowl I have the thin crappy ones that aren't presentation bowls and I can stack ten of them uh, and that only takes up like an extra inch and a half of room because they stack so closely together. I have a tiny one I use for tiny mise en place and for things like olive pits. I have a slightly larger one, a little bit larger one, and a big one that I use for uh, salad prep and things like this. And, and, and anytime someone puts one inside of the other, it's the wrong size, 
I'd lose my I lose my freaking mind. You know what I mean? I have uh, two different sizes of Pyrex measuring uh, cups that I use, and they're stacked only like on like. I have Bay Marie's. I have two sizes. They stack like on like. And here's another one for you when you're designing. Consider putting in a speed rack. You know, a, a you know a tray, sheet tray, pan, right? Because what do you? Whenever you, why is it that when you make I don't know what you celebrate, but why is it that when you make Christmas cookies or whatever, why is it your kitchen gets so hosed? It's because, or when you're making pizzas, it's because you have no place to put the freaking things when they're done or when they're coming out. Or why is it that everything gets so ruined? It's because you have no place in your kitchen to put all this stuff as you're cooking. A speed rack is like it lets you, uh, you know, store sheet trays either halves or fulls. Um, in, in, in like a tall thing with food on them. So then you can have, I did, you know, a couple days ago, I made Christmas cookies late because I didn't get to make my mom's, or they're my mom's, they're actually my great-great-grandma's bonbon cookies that I like. So I made them after Christmas and I just put them in my speed rack, blep, 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 and I was able to put, you know, eight dozen cookies into the speed rack and there you go. So those are, what do you think? Some good recommendations? Yes. Now, you had one more question and it's regarding seltzer. Uh, you want to do a seltzer uh, rig and you, you link to something called soda, soda isp, so no, soda dispenser depot.com uh, as a turnkey thing. The system they have looks like it will work. I recommend, the only valve I recommend currently uh, are CM Becker valves for soda. Most valves I don't like, even the style that looked like the emulate the old Bash and Blessing styles. Most people don't make a decent one. Go to Fox Equipment, F-O-X-X Equipment, and look up their number 12C03-208 Ibis 1 Faucet Tower. That's the one I have, and it is the balls. I love that thing. It really makes very high quality. Uh, it dispenses high quality seltzer, and it's got a really nice compensator mechanism so you can adjust the flow rate, and I lose very, very few bubbles off of it. I use a McCann carbonator that I put through a cold plate. I use a Manitowoc uh, ice uh, machine. I have their their business their business luncheon room one that you can shut off the thing uh, when you want. and makes really nice ice cubes. I drill holes in the side, put a cold plate in, goes through the McCann carbonator, which I run at 100 PSI with a 20-pound CO2 tank. Uh, I can post pictures later. But anyway, so that's that's what I use. Kenneth, in, wait, are we going to get kicked yeah. off the air? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's been a couple of weeks since we've been on. So. All right, hold on a second. So, I, so next week, I have to talk about uh, 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 Chip and his egg machine. I have a question from Dave Kleiman regarding gummy bears. I have a question on cooking uh, spiny lobsters from Josh and Antigua versus uh, versus uh, uh, our lobsters, which you know I haven't actually. I could talk a lot about cooking lobsters, but I haven't cooked a lot of spiny lobster. Uh, Matt in Akron asked me about lime juice and how to clarify it without a centrifuge. I have answers, but I won't be able to get to it uh, today. Matt McCarr, your free saw question on gelatin, I will get to, uh, and John on his sand bitter and spice question. Uh, maybe I'll answer some of these on Twitter if I can do it shortly, or maybe we'll get to them next time. But Kenneth Ingber will leave on this, a long-time listener and also supporter of the museum, uh, says this, uh, I was just thinking about the Sears All and came up with this question. Is there any danger associated with the angle of the canister? That is, there is gas phase in the upper portion of the canister and liquid phase in the bottom. When you tip the canister, the liquid could be delivered to the head rather than the gas. Does this pose a safety issue? Winter backpackers and cold garage tinkerers deal with this issue because propane and butane are not very good in cold weather. I think it's because there's not enough uh, gas phase pressure in cold, cold weather. It's true. That's why you have to change the orifice size if you know you're going to be working in the cold. So the strategy is to sometimes tip the canister and deliver liquid phase. Sometimes this is an effective strategy, and sometimes you see a warning that this can be very dangerous. Sometimes you see people complaining that the torch flame goes out. I saw in one place that the burns talks about needing to use a pressure-regulated canister if you're going to turn it upside down. The literature for the TS-8000 says, during use, hold hand torches upright to prevent flare-ups or flashes. So I'm asking about how this might be, uh, how this issue might affect the Searsol. Clearly, burns torches do not regularly explode under common issues. However, the very high temperature and size of Searsol head could pose a special danger. I think I remember Dave saying he recommends using the TS-8000 head, but what if you don't use it and just find that whatever your handy neighbor has in his garage? And this being a consumer product, your average user is not going to dependably take any special precautions. Best wishes to Dave, the crew, and you, Nastasha, for a happy new year, Ken. All right, so the issue here is delivering liquid out of the uh, thing, and some torches, the burns matic actually has 
some precautions to uh, prevent you from dispensing liquid out of it, which is one of the reasons I like the 4,000 and the 8,000. If you turn them all the way upside down, yeah, they don't, wor- they don't work as well, but they're meant to work fairly well in, as a multiple, multiple position torch, even if they're not recommended. Iwatani, one of the reasons the Iwatani is such a pain in the butt is they go through very great um, uh, pains. To ha- and that's why if you look in an Iwatani torch, they have a thin tube running through that all the butane runs through to pre-volatilize and it warms it before it gets to where the uh, orifice is so that it's always going to be a, uh, a gas when it comes out no matter what orientation you hold the torch. Now, the issue is not so much one of uh, safety. When it flames out, it's going to flame out. But that's why the reason why the – if you look at one of the Searsalls, the reason why it's angled, why it looks like a, you know an old like 60s car front is because um, we noticed that uh, in our first production, in our first uh, prototypes, they had a flat face. When you turn the torch, the torches we were using, all the way uh, so that the face was uh, parallel to meat or you know parallel to a table surface, that you would start, uh, deli- you would start having problems with liquid delivery, especially when, uh, not a safety problem, but a problem with the actual flame. And you would get this noise and you would get a fluttering and this is especially exacerbated by the fact that you get a lot of um, air uh, and hot vapor coming back up off of the torch head directly back up in line with the torch and that's why we angled the searsall head such that the torch would always be slightly inclined even when the searsall itself was uh, perpendicular, to, uh, sorry, parallel to uh, your work surface so that's why we did that uh, it's not prim- It's irritating like, like uh, those flame outs and stuff are irritating but I don't think they particularly pose uh, a safety issue. Now, uh, torches that don't have this kind of uh, nice dispensing feature, they're not really going to be high enough power anyway to do what you want with a Searsall. I really highly recommend, uh, and I think pretty, for the most part, anyone that's buying one kind of, uh, and we'll go into paints. Eventually, we want to make our own torch or you or like link it with a torch sale. But you know, we we couldn't really for the, for the first one around. But um, and if I was going to do one, I would definitely make it possible to fire it in any direction uh, uh, possible. But anyway, that's that's my answer on that. So that is something we think about quite a bit, and that's why the front head of the Searsall is angled. And we'll get those next questions. I'll either answer some of them on Twitter, or we'll get them on next week on Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.